Detectives hunting the killer of Norfolk schoolgirl Joanna Young are appealing for people with even the smallest piece of information to come forward. Joanna's partly clothed body was found in a water-filled pit about a mile from her home on Boxing Day. We do remain disappointed with the quality of responses from the people close to the killer. People like her didn't just go missing and disappear. During the Christmas holidays in December 1992, teenager Joanna Young went missing from her hometown in Watton in the county of Norfolk, East England. Her body was found three days later, floating face down in a freezing waterfield pit. Her jeans were missing. She had a fractured skull and had been dragged to the pit from a nearby path, probably by two people. Who killed her remains unsolved to today. Hello and welcome back to Unfinished with me, Tom Bristow. In today's episode, we turn our attention to suspects and where this case now stands. We're also going to hear from a new witness, as well as the last friend to see Joanna alive. I left you with a question at the end of episode two. Who was that mate? Who was that person who helped Joanna's killer drag her body to the frozen pond after she had been knocked unconscious? Come forward. Do the right thing at last. They've probably got children of their own. How would they feel if their child went out one night and then didn't come back and it took this long for them to, for it to be solved, for for you know for things to happen, it, it, you know it really wouldn't want anybody to go through, through it, like that. But that if they think of it like that, then how can they keep quiet? That is the message Joanna's mum Carol had for the killer and accomplice in the last interview she gave in 2013. Joanna's footprints end on Muddy Lane and her body is found more than 100 yards from where her trainers and underwear are found. That suggests the killer would need help to move the body. I think it's fair to assume that from the distance involved, Joanna's size, and as we heard in episode 2, from the fact that there are drag marks by the pond which match drag marks on Joanna's back. Imagine how close a friend or relative that person would need to be to keep quiet as well. Now, one listener preempted this bit slightly in an email to me this week. He wrote, Where would the panicking youth run for help? Perhaps to his mother. The fact that the body was dragged may suggest one person not being very strong. Also, the washed jeans that were found neatly folded and possibly ironed. Would a youth do this? As we'll find out, the main suspect's mother was indeed his alibi. It is believed there were two people involved moving the body. But does a third person also know what happened? a relative or a close friend who covered for the killer. This is what retired PC Peter Wormsley, who worked on the case, says. We know there were two people involved. He must have been extremely friendly with that person, or it must have been a relative or someone else he knew so well that he knew he would not say anything. For 26 years, police have maintained that the killer is local. It is very likely she went down there with somebody of her own age, said Detective Superintendent Mike Cole, who led the murder investigation at the time. Detective Chief Inspector Marie James said last year, I'm convinced that somebody in the Watton area has the answers as to what happened to Joanna and the events that led to her death. There are several reasons for this. Joanna went down the lane of her own accord. The killer returned to the scene to cover up her body at least once. They then returned four weeks later, on January the 19th, 1993, 
and place her genes nearby. Perhaps most importantly, no stranger to the area would have known about the existence of that pond. And no stranger, even if lost, would be going down a muddy track late at night on December 23rd. That means Joanna probably met someone she knew, someone local, and the mate, the accomplice, is also local. One theory about what she was doing early that night was walking down the main road out of Watton, called the Norwich Road, to see her boyfriend Ryan. He was initially a suspect and was questioned by police but was quickly ruled out. He was out that night visiting a friend. First, uh, you know, I was prime suspect number one. Uh, you know, I found that hard to live with because, you know, I know I didn't do it and other people didn't see my point of view. That's him talking to local TV station ITV Anglia in March 1993. Ryan and Joanna had been going out for around six months, but had split up a couple of days before she went missing. He later told a national newspaper, We were always arguing and I wanted to cool things off for a while. I thought we may get back together. He believed that the night Joanna went missing, she had been coming to see him. We know she walked down Norwich Road towards his house that night because she was last seen on Watton High Street. And to get to Muddy Lane, she would have had to have gone down Norwich Road in the direction of Ryan's house. He lived just off the Norwich Road on a turning on the right after Muddy Lane. That's the path she later walked down and where she likely met her killer. I reckon she might have been coming to see me, Ryan later said. She wouldn't have been going down there if we hadn't split up. She wouldn't have been walking down that way. Ryan also tells ITV at the time. I'm just trying to get on with, you know, a proper life, but I've still got this guilty conscience that I was to blame because if I hadn't have broken up with her, you know, she wouldn't have been walking down that way. I've also found some evidence during this podcast that Joanna may have been trying to see Ryan earlier that day. Vivian Sellers, who we heard from in episodes one and two, ran a taxi firm in the town where Joanna worked. She remembers seeing Joanna walking down the Norwich Road in the direction of Ryan's house earlier that day at around 3.30pm. Well, I'd, I'd obviously been on a, on a job and I was coming down the Norwich Road and that was where there was a Nat West bank and a wooden shed on the, on the left-hand side of the road as I was coming down. So I didn't see her from the other side of the road. I saw her from my side of the road and she was walking up. And the boy that she was talking about lived in Norwich Road further up. I am positive that was 110%. That was Joanna I saw at 20 past three on the Norwich Road. The other thing Ryan told the press at the time was that Joanna had spoken in the past about running away and staying with friends outside of Watton, but he didn't know who. There's very little evidence to suggest that that is what she intended to do that night. If she was going to run away, why only leave with a jacket? Nor is there evidence that she would go off with a stranger. This leaves us with the third question detectives must answer to solve this case. Where did Joanna go? after she was last seen by a friend near the Gateway supermarket on Watton High Street at around 8.45pm on December 23rd, 1992. The fact that she walked up Norwich Road suggests she could have been going to see Ryan. She had walked up there earlier that day, according to Vivian. He wasn't at home that night. So if she knocked and found he was out, why didn't she then return home? Ryan's house is only a couple of minutes walk away from the High Street. So what was she doing the rest of the time between her last sighting and her death? Why stay out on a cold, foggy night? We know she was upset about splitting up with Ryan, but why walk down a dark, muddy track by yourself if you're not going to meet someone? In 1995, six new witnesses came forward in response to a police appeal. 
One said they saw a young man and a woman in her late teens at the junction of Griston Road and Norwich Road at about 9pm. Griston Road is the right-hand turn in before Muddy Lane. Muddy Lane leads on to Griston Road, and it was the road where her shoes were later found, close to where her body was also found. Witnesses also told police in 1995 that a second man was seen in town that night, wearing a denim jacket, and police wanted to identify him. Joanna was mature for her age, so a witness could easily have confused her for being in her late teens, especially on a foggy night. Since I put out the last episode, another witness has come forward. What he says has never been heard publicly before, and it could be vital information in helping to establish where Joanna went after she was last seen on Watton High Street. Or it could be another dead-end lead. He says he told the police at the time about it, as well as a couple of years ago when another appeal was put out. But before I begin, just a couple of disclaimers. What he says we can't verify from another source, and his memory has faded. He doesn't want to be named in this podcast, as he was questioned by police at the time as a suspect and had DNA taken. But he is happy for me to tell you what he knows and what he told the police. So here goes. The night Joanna went missing, our new witness was driving down the Norwich Road out of Watton to his home. As he passed the turning for Griston Road at around 9.30pm, he saw a van stopped at the junction. It was a silver colour Luton type van. Luton's a box vans of a cuboid shaped cargo area. There was a man in the van and he was leaning out of the driver's window arguing with a girl. He was waving his finger, there was a lot of gesturing, the witness said. They were shouting loudly, she was gesturing with her hands, you could see they were arguing. It was dark, although a nearby streetlight was on, he remembers, and he couldn't make out who the two people were. The driver was not facing him. This witness did know Joanna, so if he had had a better view he would have been able to identify her, but he can't be sure it was her. However, he is sure of the date, December 23rd, 1992. So at the top of the road, where Joanna's shoes and underwear are later found, and near to where her body is discovered, our witness sees what he calls a young female arguing with a man in the van. He said he believed he recognised the van as belonging to someone who lived and worked in the town. He only knew the person's first name and he did pass it on to police, but nothing appears to have come of that lead. But this is not information which has been heard before, and as far as we know the man in the van has never been identified. That is the second witness who says they saw a young woman and a man by the Norwich Road that night. Remember in episode 2, we heard that one witness told police they saw a young man leaning on a motorbike with a girl at around 9pm. Now we have a second witness saying they saw a young girl arguing with a man in a van at least half an hour later in the same area. But why are we only hearing this now? Why didn't police put out an appeal at the time for anyone who saw a silver-coloured Luton van or for the driver to come forward? They did, after all, put out appeals based on other information. Norfolk Police has refused to answer any of the questions about any of the issues raised in this podcast, so it leaves us to guess why this information was not put out. It might be that they didn't believe the witness. He was treated as a suspect after all, so perhaps they thought at the time he was telling them that information to rule himself out. But why then come forward again more than 20 years later and repeat that information if you were only trying to rule yourself out? If that was her standing at the junction of Griston Road and Norwich Road, How did she arrange to meet that person? It is possible she simply bumped into them, and being someone she knew, she went off with them. But ultimately, neither we nor the police know for sure. She was last seen in the town centre by by friends, by people that knew her at 8.45. But after that time, we just don't know what happened to Joanna Young, who she was with, where she went, and, and how she came by her death. 
We just don't know what happened to Joanna. Those are the words of Detective Chief Inspector Marie James. Even after all these years, the holes, the gaps in this case are huge. There is a lot in this case that police don't know for sure. The last person believed to have seen Joanna alive, other than the killer, has also got in touch with me, which has given us another insight into Joanna's last movements that night and how she is still missed today. Joanna's friend also did not want to be named, but here is my colleague Bethany reading out what she remembers. I was in Joe's class at school and we were pretty close. I still miss her every day and it really hit me hard when we lost her. I remember those last few days quite clearly. I remember a policeman coming to my front door on Christmas Day to ask me questions and the three times afterwards I was interviewed as the police believed I was the last friend to see her alive. I remember that last time. I was in Watton with another friend getting last minute bits for Christmas. My friend was in a hurry for some reason and I only saw Joe briefly and regret not having more time to talk to her. I remember asking if she was okay and yes, she did seem down. I wish now that I had more time then to talk to her. I also remember how upsetting it was being interviewed at that age and how they repeated the same question over and over. By the third time I was interviewed, my mum put her foot down and told the police unless they had new questions I was not to be interviewed anymore because of how it all upset me. So yeah, I miss Jo every day. She helped to shape me into the person I am today and she still holds a big place in my heart. I hope the podcast will bring someone forward. A lot of things went right for the killer that night. Luck and silence have been his two greatest allies. We've covered the silence of the accomplice, but think about how lucky he was to get away with what he did. Luck in that there is no DNA. Luck in that there are no footprints or tyre marks on the hard frozen ground. Luck that the key witness, the dog walker, who heard someone stumbling in the darkness near where Joanna's body was found, didn't see the person because of the fog. The police's main suspect in this case, who we are not naming, lived near Joanna. He was aged 20 at the time. He was arrested in February 1993 and held by police for three days, but was then released without charge. Suspects are usually only named in the UK once they have been charged, and they are obviously innocent until proven guilty. Nothing has been proven against this suspect. However, in November 1993, he was in court for a driving offence, which his solicitor blamed on the pressure of being suspected as Joanna's killer. He has been convicted by Watton, the solicitor said. And around town today, the people I speak to still believe that police had the right man. Now, they interviewed the boyfriend and let him go. Yeah. But they did actually arrest a young local man. Yeah. And my understanding always was that they were certain they'd got the right person, but they hadn't got sufficient facts to charge him. And that's where it stopped. That was the Eastern Daily Press reporter from the time, John Kitson, speaking to me this year. Vivian Sellers also remembers that people believed he had done it. One shred of evidence is what the last thing the police told me. One shred. Another shred of evidence Another would have nailed him. And I still say it's him. The prime suspect, the mother and daughter went to a safe house. The prime suspect's mother and 
The do- his sister. Head, his sister, yes. So everyone in the town knew the suspect's identity. I had well, I I berated him when he was about sixteen. He was on the green over there with a little dog, and he was he was literally kicking three five bells out of it, you know. And I had a go at him. I'll tell you who he reminds me of. Um, that was that little guy in the in the James Bond films with a with a bowler hat. Oh, odd job. Odd job. That's the one. A mini odd job. But why was he the main suspect? Why did police believe he'd done it? And if they were so convinced, why couldn't they convict him? Norfolk police have repeatedly refused to be interviewed by me about this case. But this is what PC Wormsley remembers. We are sitting in Pete's kitchen in Watton, talking over tea and biscuits. So I do apologise for the sound of saucers. The suspect that police eventually focused on then, what, what led them to him? Well, there was a lot of rumour and speculation, no hard evidence, but he disappeared after the crime. And when people saw him before, prior to his disappearance, they saw deep scratches on his hands and arms, lower arms, um, and he disappeared. By the time he came back, they'd gone. Why are the scratches relevant? The scratches are relevant where the place Joanna was taken. That pit was full of brambles that thick. There's 40 officers, there's the top brains in Norfolk police on it. Why can't they nail him down? I don't know. At that time, what they were doing was interviewing with DCs and PCs, interviewing any criminal. Serious crime was dealt with by a detective constable or two, maybe a detective sergeant listening on, or listening through a window, or watching through a window. Um, I don't know why top brass weren't involved in that, and I still think, you know, at the time, we had, there's an awful lot of education should have been going on for people who interview people. We were a hick force, a county force, we weren't the Met. I don't know why we didn't ask for help from them. Did he have an alibi? I, yes, his alibi was his mother. And she backed that up? And she backed him up. And that's why I, in my interview on the piece that you heard, is that I sort of really tried to impress people that, you know, you're not helping the guy if you're keeping us from knowing the truth. Because one way or the other, he will end up admitting it and we will find him and or he'll admit it or he will come into the police station and say I can't bear this anymore or it'll be a deathbed confession. I guess at the time the police and people in Watton and certainly from reading um, our old cuttings there is quite a high degree of confidence that this will be solved. Um, I think Superintendent Cole who, who you mentioned you know said his own words he was confident um, that they would get someone. He had had 19 murder inquiries in his life, which he'd sorted. This one was the 20th, and he didn't sort it. So he was still quite confident, but I mean, I think he got his man or woman, you know, fairly quickly on into uh, his investigations, but there was nothing like that. You know, you just couldn't go and grab someone and say, you did it. Open your gob and speak. Come on, admit it. We've got evidence. He couldn't say it because he didn't have any evidence. And was not an idiot. He had been arrested, once arrested by me or reported by me for theft. I um, can't remember when it was, and I can't remember the occurrence. But had, if he has that kind of knowledge of crime, 
then he wouldn't have known exactly what we were going to do, how he was going to be arrested, where he was going to be taken. We'd take all his clothes off him and put him in a cotton suit, and then he'd be interviewed. And, and he knew that process. Ah, oh, of course he knew the process, yeah. He knew the process. He because he'd been in trouble with the police before. He'd been in trouble with the police before, and he was surrounded by people who'd been in trouble with the police before. They were, you know, like a hit little group in Watton. Of no consequence. They weren't, you know, they weren't mega intelligent. They'd left school without any, probably, any qualifications at all. But he was intelligent enough to avoid... Much lag, you know what's going on, don't you? If you've been arrested once, you know what the system is. You know you're going to be held in a cell for a few minutes while the officer gets his stuff together. Then you'll be taken down to the forensic department. Your fingerprints will be taken. You'll be photographed. I tracked the suspect down on Facebook a few weeks ago and asked to speak to him, but he didn't reply. The only time he has been quoted about this case was in an article by journalist Nick Davis in 1993, which I mentioned in an earlier episode. Almost everyone in Watton knows that the prime suspect for the murder is one of their own children, standing on the doorstep of his council house with his hands jammed into the pockets of his blue jeans. The prime suspect insists that it is all a mistake. Everybody knows they took me in. My solicitor says I should sue them. My car wasn't even on the road that night. The clutch had gone and it wouldn't even go round the block. Then people who said I had scratches was wrong. I never had scratches. They kept on at me. They took intimate body samples. They'd done my car. I kept telling them I was at home all evening. My mum was there, but she doesn't remember things well. I hardly even knew Joanna, just to say hello to. I didn't know her well. I said earlier about silence being one of the killer's two greatest allies. At least two people living in Watton at the time know who killed Joanna. But with no DNA, 26 years on, the only hope for justice is that one of them speaks out. My mother-in-law's grave is nearly next door to hers. And, oh, you can't miss it. And, you know, you... That does bring tears to your eyes. Somebody, that guy or somebody, whoever did it, someday it's going to spill the beans. Maybe unintentionally. I believe there is still hope today. Previous appeals have almost always brought new information forward. In 2013, an appeal even led to two new arrests. Those arrests in 2014 followed a 21-year anniversary appeal by Joanna's parents at Christmas 2013. It is the last time they've spoken publicly about this case, and it sparked several people to get in touch with police. Norfolk Constabulary said it was the best ever response they had had to a cold case. And then in April 2014, a man in his 40s from the Watton area was arrested. A second man in his 30s from nearby Thetford was also arrested. Both men lived in Watton at the time of Joanna's death, knew each other, and would have been in their teens in the 1990s. But by the summer of 2014, both had been released without charge and no further action. However, those arrests fit with the theory that two young men from the Watton area were involved in Joanna's death. Then in May 2014, a local businessman came forward. For 21 years, he had only told his wife about a hooded man he had stopped to give a lift to, just half a mile from where Joanna was found, on the night she went missing. The man he gave a lift to was in his late teens, scruffy, and the man said he was acting suspiciously as he drove him along Norwich Road to Schoolton, which is about five miles away. He was not either of the two men arrested by police, and as far as we know, he has never been identified. Then in December 2017, 
On the 25th anniversary, following another appeal by police, two new leads emerged. Again, they sadly came to nothing. But police have put in a huge amount of work trying to solve this. In total, more than 4,500 leads have been investigated, more than 1,600 statements taken. It is one of nine cold cases which still sits on Norfolk Constabulary's website. But with 26 years gone, the town has long moved on. The feeling of unease and fear gradually dissipates, and uh, I think that's what's happened here, that uh, within a matter of months, however dramatic the story, uh, it tends to fade in people's consciousness and memory, and you become less worried. People of my age, and there are lots of my age and similar, will, will, will remember it, uh, and, and younger people uh, will, oh yes, Joanna Young, yes, I remember that. Uh, but basically it's not, I don't think, any longer a matter of daily or weekly or regular conversation. It's a, it's a thing that happened 26 years ago, hugely regrettable, and, and more regrettable that uh, nobody's been brought to book. That was the old Eastern Daily Press reporter, John Kitson. And here are Peter Wormsley's final thoughts. It's very unfortunate that no one was actually arrested and convicted for her murder, manslaughter. And the, what, what, what impact does it have on the town that, that it remains unsolved? Talk to anyone, they'd be very saddened by it. Um, no matter what came through, not, what, what, what emerged from the inquiry and the salaciousness of the inquiry, that, that particular stuff that came out, that matters not to the life of a young girl. You know, it should never have been lost, which is, you know, how I'd end it. it it's very, very, very sad indeed. And it's equally sad that we have not come up with um, the person who committed the act. Or persons. And here is Jan Godfrey speaking about how the school recovered. Yeah, I don't look at every every lad of forty and think, was it you? Whereas at the time, we we all thought of all the kids that it might have been that she would have known kids in her class, and fourteen up to twenty, who you know who would have been the likely age group for to be involved in this this event. It was it was horrible. It was really uncomfortable. There are not many days when there isn't something that reminds me of Joe, and I, fleetingly, I think. Um, I remember him from that time, or... Um, what, what sort of things? <laughs> um, a name on Facebook the other day, um, which I won't say, but I picked up somebody on Facebook who might well have been involved at the time, and I remembered him being questioned. Um, and. And that picture of Joe comes in, into my head straight away. Um, the people close to her, her classmates and so on, were really quite um, affected by it and talked about it a lot. Once the funeral had taken place, which as I recall was in June, but, but once that had happened, it faded a bit. I would say it took until the summer holidays because the, the funeral took place in June. It wasn't that long after another month and it was summer holidays and they all separated and I think that summer holidays was as much a cure as anything really. Her parents also soon realised that life would have to move on. Here they are speaking to ITV in 1993, 12 weeks after her disappearance. You don't want to forget her but um, you still have to get on with, with 
ordinary things and uh unfortunately life just can't stand still you know we've you know we have to eat and sleep and all the other things that you know we normally do but uh we just cope you know that's about all we can say really and this is what they tell the press association 20 years later in 2013. things have to carry on and you you carry on you put it to the back of your mind and, and you get through the days then you get through the years or the months and then the years and and it's always there it's always with you but you just have to carry on where did joanna go after she was last seen by a friend on watton high street on the evening of december the 23rd who placed joanna's shoes by the hedge on griston road where were joanna's jeans between her death and four weeks later when they were found at the scene who was the second person who helped move her body. If you can help answer any of these four questions, please contact Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800 555 111. That's 0800 one or Norfolk Police on 101. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished with me, Tom Brister. And thanks to everyone who has provided information and helped to put this together. If you found it interesting, please share and recommend with friends or leave us a review and rating on iTunes. That is the last episode I have planned for now about Joanna Young. But if we have any more updates, you'll be the first to know. You can find out more about this case on the Eastern Daily Press website. That's edp24.co.uk and tap on the unfinished podcast tab at the top of the homepage. In the next episode, we'll look at another cold case from this part of the world. That will be out in the coming weeks. Until then, goodbye.